This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and we have got a jam-packed show for you today. Of course, we'll start off with the weekly monologue. This week, we're going to talk about something a little bit different. We're going to talk about the importance of gratitude. Now, I know that sounds hokey, sounds like an episode of Oprah or something along those lines, but I'm applying it to combat sports, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So that's coming up in just a bit. But first, let's break down what is happening on today's edition of the TSN MMA Show. We'll start off with a recap of UFC Fight Night, a great main event between Armand Sarukian and Mateusz Gamrot. Really fun fight, high, high-level stuff. Really enjoyed this past weekend's card. And I'll break it down with UFC bantamweight Vince Morales, who lives in Las Vegas, watched the event with a couple of his training partners. And I'll get his take on what he thought about the main event, the, the way that it was scored. I personally didn't uh, like the way it was scored. I know that this seems to be a recurring subject. But again, usually I'm giving the, the judges the benefit of the doubt. They're, very fam- they're more familiar with the criteria than anybody else. But in this situation, I just didn't agree with how they scored the rounds. And we'll talk about that with UFC bantamweight Vince Morales. And then the headlines. What's going on in the world of mixed martial arts? I break it down with MMA junkies Nolan King. Talking about everything that happened in the MMA space this past weekend. And, of course, the latest subjects in the sport. And after that, we will uh, do a preview of UFC 276. Myself and the Action Network's Dan Stupp, we talk about the betting perspective going into this weekend's UFC card. And, yeah, that's all the appetizer, the main event, the meal, so to speak, the entree. That's the word I'm looking for. UFC President Dana White joins me at the end of the show to preview UFC 276 and talk about all things under the sun in the world of mixed martial arts. So, let's get right into it. Here is this week's monologue. We talk about gratitude and why it's important to have gratitude for the elite fighters of today. International Fight Week is upon us, and it boasts two incredible title fights at the top of the card. You've got Israel Adesanya defending his middleweight belt against Jared Cannonier, and Alexander Volkanovsky facing Max Holloway for a third time, trying to put an exclamation point on his featherweight legacy. I want to focus this monologue on the teammates, the two champions, Adesanya and Volkanovsky. And talk about why we should be grateful to get to watch these two elite athletes do their thing at the highest level, neither of whom have lost in their respective weight classes throughout their entire career. Berkeley University did a very important study on gratitude and the positive impacts that it has on our mental wellness. So rather than the critiques that diminish the accomplishments of not just champions, but any athlete who has risen to the highest level of competition in their respective sport, let's take a moment to appreciate their contributions. The study outlines four benefits of gratitude that we can apply to these great champions. Number one, gratitude unshackles us from toxic emotions. Do you place expectations on these athletes that they cannot possibly live up to? These two champions combined for 38 straight wins in their weight classes and have combined for 27 knockout wins. What will it take for us to throw away useless narratives like criticizing a string of decision wins against the absolute best challengers in their divisions? Rather than watching through that lens, Let's go into their fights with the appreciation for watching those who have already achieved greatness try to further that greatness with very little to gain and everything to lose in terms of their legacies. Number two, gratitude helps even if you don't share it. While I am sharing my gratitude for these elite fighters here, it is okay to just internalize it. To look at what they've achieved, 
Think of all the hard work that went into it and appreciate what these athletes put into becoming elite competitors will make watching them compete all the more enjoyable and gratifying. Number three, gratitude's benefits take time. It is really easy to commodify these athletes, to denote their value as how much money they help you win in sports betting and fantasy sports or the entertainment that you derive from how exciting their fights are. The next time that you do this, remember that these were your own assessments and that we should appreciate what goes into making these situations possible in the first place. Number four, gratitude has lasting effects on the brain. So often do we muse about whether an athlete should have retired sooner or where they stand all time. Rather than engage in these benign debates, if we spend more time appreciating these athletes while they are competing in their prime, the what-ifs simply don't matter. Let's enjoy greatness while it is happening. And then rather than lamenting an athlete losing a title or retiring, we can feel grateful that we got to enjoy their prime championship years. So this Saturday at International Fight Week, sit back and enjoy these elite athletes and what they bring to the table week in and week out. And maybe go back and watch some of their incredible performances from past years. Enjoy the highlights. Soak it all in. Because in MMA, these runs don't last forever. I'm Aaron Bronstetter, and this is The Monologue. That was The Monologue on being grateful, showing gratitude to the elite fighters right now who are putting it all on the line and have... I mean, look at Holloway. Look at Volkanovski. Look at Adesanya. I mean, the amount of wins that these guys have combined is just unbelievable. And uh, speaking of gratitude, I'm very grateful to be joined by Vince Morales, Vendetta, who's uh, in Las Vegas right now and watched all of last night's card. Now, before we start, let's, let's talk about biases. I know that John Wood was in the corner of Armand Surukian, and he's your coach. You've been in the corner with John as a coach as well. So we have that. But how did you see the fight last night in the main event? Um, I thought, so my, my first thoughts once the fight was over was, uh, I could easily, not easily, I could see a better argument for it being four to one for Armand rather than three to two for uh, for Gamrot. So, in, in in my mind, from what I watched, I had I had Armand winning. I don't want to say fairly easily because it was a tough scrap, but uh, but I definitely I can understand three to two for Armand. I could definitely understand still a four to one. I just, I just with both those in mind, as soon as they said unanimous, I was like, it's got to be Armand. I was with, yeah, I'm with you. In fact, I gave Gamrot the fifth round, and I'm not sure if I gave him the fifth round because, you know, you know, sometimes when you're scoring a fight and it's kind of close, you don't want to give somebody all five rounds in your mind. But honestly, I think giving Taruki on all five rounds is a better scorecard than giving um, Gamrot three rounds. And I'm not saying this because you train under John Wood. I'm saying this because that's how I felt watching the fight. I had no horse in the race. But when you're looking at damage, and that's the number one criteria uh, in the in the you know what the judges should be looking for. I don't know if they're just ignoring body work altogether, but those body kicks, to me, were by far the most damaging strikes landed by either fighter in the round, and Sarukian was landing them with such consistency. That, that, was, that was exactly what I was thinking. Um, I, I, weighed, uh, I weighed the body kicks heavy. Um, he dropped him with the spinning back fist. Granted, I think the body kicks did more damage than the spinning back fist. Um, but yeah, just cons- consistently, I thought all the damage was coming from Armand's side. Um, Gamera had had some good moments here and there, but uh, but yeah, literally almost every round it, it was easier to make a case for Armand than it was for Gamera. So, well, I'm not one of these guys that brings out the pitchforks for the judges. I think that the judges have a really difficult job to do. But I also yeah. feel like not enough people know the scoring criteria, and that gives you know people ammunition against the judges that really is it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in this situation, looking at the criteria and having studied it, you know, very in depth, 
I just don't see how they saw three rounds for Gamrot there. I mean, the only way that it makes sense, again, is I went and looked at the official stats afterwards, and Gamrot targeted the head 88% of the time, whereas Armand targeted it like 44% of the time, 41% of the body, something along those lines. Maybe they're just looking for more visible damage, and instead of looking at damage to the body, the more visible damage to Armand's face maybe swayed them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... They might need to get kicked to the body a few times or something just because uh, you can't sweep those under the rug. I, I feel like uh, there, there were welts all over Gamrod's body. Um, yeah, there was the cut under under Armand's eye, which I think popped up around the fourth, maybe end of the third round or something like that. Um, but but still, like like every, everything effective, I feel like for the most part, getting the better of each exchange, whether that was ground or striking, it was, it was all on uh, Armand's side. So... I don't know, and, and I know I was watching it afterwards, and Gamrot was saying that he thought he had won the last three rounds, and and that's that's exactly how how all all the judges had it. So I was like, maybe they're not seeing something I'm not, but but yeah, it, it missed missed me with that one. Uh, I I thought it was I thought it was Armand pretty handily. Yeah, so I agree with you there, and uh, you may have the bias, but I do not. I I just call it like I see it, and. I, I thought that's that, what I said. Yeah. yeah, and I thought that the takedowns, you know, that's where I thought that Gamrot had the advantages. I thought he got some really good positions on the ground, but he just didn't do anything with in terms of damage, which is what the criteria says. You know, it's just a change of position if you're not going to actually land damage with those takedowns. And I think that that is really what swayed me when I was watching it. I was in my head. I'm always kind of keeping a tally. You know, what's what's doing damage, what's landing impactfully, and again, I just I kept I kept tallying it up for Armand, and then you looked at that fourth round where he actually registered a knockdown and every judge scored it for Gamrod. That, that, I, that's the one round that I really cannot wrap my head around. That, that blew my mind. Um, I, I, did, I did think that round was like, it, it ended up being close if you ignore the, the knockdown, but you can't ignore that. that. That was probably the most significant thing of the whole fight. So I was watching the fight with, uh, with Ode Osborne and Journey Dusen, and granted, we, we we literally said the same thing, uh, trying to keep biasness out of it. But uh, we all and we said, said the same exact thing. He just wasn't doing Gamera wasn't doing enough with those takedowns in order for there to be like for it to be significant in my mind. Um, he he might might barely just hold on to it by this much for for a little longer than than our mom would have liked. But in terms of what was done with that, nothing nothing that nothing that swayed me for any of the rounds. And my other thought was maybe I'm just seeing it differently through it, you know, because it's on television and we're getting different angles, we're getting different vantage points, we're hearing the strikes land differently than in the building. But I knew somebody who was actually there in attendance, and they said they were very surprised when the scorecards were read for Gamrod as well. So that that just confused me even further as to how he got the win. Yeah, uh, I, I I went to bed thinking it was a it was a little bit of bias on on my end, but uh, I well, and then I woke up and saw John Wood's tweet about it, and he he was confused with the decision as well. And I was like, well, see, there you go. But he's also a head coach, so I, I, the bias thought popped back in. Um, I don't know. I, I, I was very surprised. We, we, had a, we had a house full of people, and we were all kind of – as soon as they said unanimous, half of us were saying, oh, oh, Armand's got it. One thing that was cool to me about that fight, and I, I didn't see anybody point it out, you had Pahumpa in one corner and Mike Brown in the other corner. You don't see that very often. I know James Krause sometimes is coached against his own coach, Mark Montoya, but I, I can't recall seeing two coaches from American top team – in opposing corners when one guy's training out in Las Vegas. Yeah, that, that, that was very interesting. That's a good point. I didn't even, that hadn't even crossed my mind. Uh, it, it, in my mind, just because Armand's been at Syndicate so consistent, 
I didn't even, <laughs> I completely forgot he was at other gyms prior. <laughs> he's, he's been there wrecking shop on everybody. And, and I was like, oh, cool. I'm glad he's one of our guys. So I'm sure you've been in there with Armand. He's one heck of a fighter. And I think I kind of underestimated his striking going into last night. I thought his striking looked really on point. I thought his best path to victory was going to be in the grappling realm. And it turned out that he was just a better, I think, all-around fighter than, than Gamrod. <laughs> Again, even though Gamrod ended up scoring the win, I think Gamrod had a lot of, he set a lot of traps. And I thought that he showed a really high fight IQ, um, was able to take advantage of any sort of slip-up that Armand gave him. But he didn't give him that many. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, he performs the same way in the gym. Uh, I, I hate any time it's a uh, – granted, I, I haven't sparred with him because uh, he's, he's, he's man-sized. So they keep the 35ers away from, from those big guys. But uh, I, I have got, got to roll with him, and, uh, and it's the closest thing to a mauling that I've ever had. <laughs> it was, uh, I, I, was, I was very impressed. And just literally after watching him train and training with him um, and knowing how tough Gamrot was, I, anytime I was looking at the fight – uh, from a technical standpoint, I was like, this is going to be all, it's all Armand. Um, striking, I, I watch him in the gym, and it's just, uh, he's nonstop, man. It, I was uh, beyond impressed. I'm su- super motivated after watching the fight. I'm a little disheartened about the decision, especially for him. You can see how heartbroken he was. But um, at end of the day, we're fighters. We deal with the obstacles as they come, and I know he's going to be back. So. Well, speaking of impressive co-main event, Shavkat Rachmanov, two seconds left in the second round, defeating Neil Magny. I mean, that was one-way traffic, and Neil Magny is not an easy guy to do that to. Just how much potential do you think Shabkat Rachmanov has? Man, the sky, the sky's the limit for him. I think uh, I, I was I was picking him by finish in this fight as well. Uh, he just everything that he showed in the past, he just he's got very little holes, and he's an, another guy with a real, really, really, really ridiculously high fight IQ. And you can see him thinking and still picking picking the right shots and and setting the right traps and doing all the right things in there. Uh, that squeeze must have been because with with only then when it was fully locked in, I was like, okay, he's probably going to make it to the end of the round. Because uh, in my mind, it's, it's it's go out before tap. But uh, that squeeze must have been on there, and, and Neil Magny must know where it was headed because uh, that was he looked panicked. He wanted it, he wanted it out of there. It was crazy. Yeah, I think he was right. Very impressive. I think he was right in his corner too. In his corner, we're counting down either like ten seconds, whatever, five seconds, and even then he wasn't able yep. to hang on. So I mean, like you mentioned, the squeeze must have been otherworldly because Neil Magny is the type, not the type of guy to go out very easily. Yeah, that was it was it was beyond impressive, man. Uh, that guy's going to be a force. I know. I I feel like they were talking about him versus Kamayev um, a while back. In in after a performance like that, I want to see that matchup. I want to see how I want to see how that fight goes for him. I think everybody does, but we need a bit of a slow build. Like if, if you were if you were booking for Shavkat, you know he had mentioned guys like uh, I think he said Stephen Thompson. Um, I think he mentioned one of the Diaz yeah. brothers, and then somebody asked him about Sean Brady, and he said, "I'll fight Sean Brady too." I think that to me is that that's the matchup that I would like to see next for him, because I think Sean Brady, wow. uh, just just because those guys are both ascending so quickly, and at welterweight, I, I think we just need to see who the cream of the crop are, because you've got a guy like Shemaev who's coming up, um, Leon Edwards obviously fighting for the title in August. I just think that we need to see. We need to narrow down the contenders a little bit. I know that a lot of people don't like seeing two guys that are on the come up go against each other and that it will eliminate a contender. I just think that, that would be a really interesting matchup. I agree. I'm in, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I, I just get a little greedy because I see two two really good guys. And I'm like, oh, immediately we got we got to see how this goes. But um, I think uh, from a marketing standpoint, it probably is the best route to let them get that like slow burn to the top and kind of and weed out the division. Because right now, I think most of the divisions. Like their top like 15 guys are all probably fairly interchangeable with like what would be the top five. So it's a uh, it's deep waters in all these divisions. And in, uh, in uh, yeah, Rockman is probably a real he's a shark in in 170. So 
I wonder how he would do against a guy like Gilbert Burns. Like we saw Shamaya pass that test, but it wasn't an easy <laughs> test to pass. I just think that Gilbert wants a more kind of a, a bigger name opponent next, and I think he's earned that after taking the Shamaya fight. Absolutely. Uh, that was that was a great fight they put on. I, I love that. Um, w- one thing I thought was interesting, that was the first time Darren Till was in Kamaya's corner, and all of a sudden Kamaya went from getting hit only once or twice in three fights to like 100 or something like that. <laughs> something ridiculous. So the curse of Darren Till. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, you might be right. Who knows? Maybe if he removes Till from the corner next time, maybe he'll just breeze through uh, Kamaru Usman if that's his next matchup. I doubt that'll be the case, though. Uh, Josh Parisian. <laughs> Josh Parisian, big comeback against Alan Baudot. You know, credit to him. He was moving. You know, that's, that's one thing you need to see from a fighter if you're a referee. Baudot was, was pounding on him, landing big shots, but you kept seeing Parisian go for submissions. He was, try- he was moving on bottom, hung in there, ended up getting a nice finish in the second round. Yeah, su- super impressive. Uh, showed how tough he really is, and like, uh, and how smart. Because at the end of the round, when he finally got him down, that was the first thing that he went right back to when the second round started. Um, landed good shots, did all the right things, survived well. Um, that was it, he was getting hit with some interesting stuff. That standing hammer fist was coming at like some odd angles. Um, uh, that well, aside from getting hurt and almost finished, but uh, yeah, Parisian is tough. I think he deserved a bonus for that one. That was great. Tiago Moises submits Christos Giago's first round. Moises needed a performance like that. He had uh, been getting really tough opponents, and Gagos also gets a lot of tough opponents. These guys get difficult assignments. And I think it was one of those situations where, like, let's see which of these guys who's getting these difficult assignments is the superior fighter. Kind of a step backwards for both of them, but at the same time, I thought Moises looked maybe career best in that fight. Yeah, ph- phenomenal, really. That was the same. Uh, he-, he looked how I was trying, how I was envisioning looking him looking against uh, Islam back when they fought. Because I'd seen those like glimpses of greatness from Mo- Moises in the past, and uh, and yeah, like like you said, he had some tough. He had some tough. His last two fights were very tough. Uh, I think he needed that, especially because I think he's top. He's high level in the division, and uh, and sometimes after all tough losses, you're you're hard, you can get a little disheartened. And uh, I was I was happy to see him come away with that performance. That was uh, very impressive because Kiagos is tough. Let's go to your division, a.k.a. Murderer's Row. Umar Nurmagomedov, one of those murderers, just completely mauls Nate Maness. He was a minus 1,100 favorite. So, I mean, credit to Maness for hanging in there with him for three rounds. Didn't land a whole bunch against him. So here's my question to you, as someone who fights in this division. Umar Nurmagomedov, future champion of bantamweight. Would you, would you say that that's likely? Until he runs into the likes of, like, Ricky Simone or somebody, he's probably going to be undefeated. Uh, In the future, I can see him definitely posing a problem. He's very, very, very fast on the feet. um, And he had those glimpses of, like, Khabib, uh, just his top pressure, the way he can pull, the way he kind of stuffed Manus up against the cage. It was was very impressive. And Manus being 14-1, coming off of a big win over Tony Gravely. um, I was kind of high on him. I was like, wow, that's crazy that that the odds are so ridiculous. if, if I would have put some money, I was thinking about putting some money on, on Manus for that fight just because the odds I thought were they were a little disrespectful. But uh, Umar pro- proved me wrong. I mean, he got in there and did literally everything he need, needed to. And I think he came away pretty, like unscathed. Didn't he only get hit like twice, once, once or, or twice? twice yeah. Something ridiculous. That was uh, – I, I was very I was very impressed. And to do that in this division is uh, – that's a feat in and of itself. So um, I think he's going to be – he's going to be a problem until somebody can uh, – and take him out of his element. Right now, it seems like he can kind of fight everywhere. Um, he's tough, man. That's a that's a very interesting prospect for our division. So you want to see a good grappler with a high motor. And I mean, we mentioned the uh, disclosing the John Wood 
bias earlier. Ricky Simone's your cousin, if I recall correctly. Am I right on that? <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I definitely don't think that's coming from a bias thing. That's coming from uh, <laughs> the second person to uh, to maul me. It's a uh, I got Ricky Simone mauling and then a Armin uh, Armin mauling, and uh, that's it. So, and I, I train with a lot of people. So uh, I, th- I think Ricky's something special for our division as well. Um, so, Umar, watch out. Also the only person to beat Marab Valsvili who's facing uh, Jose Aldo very soon. So kudos to Ricky Simone. I, I like your cousin a lot. Good guy who loves coffee like I do. So I don't know where you stand on coffee, <laughs> but he's, he's a big coffee drinker. I, I love it. And not, and not to not to toot my own horn, but every time he comes over, over here and stays with us, uh, he says we, we make the best coffee that he's had. So... I don't know what we're doing with our coffee because it's literally just in the pot, but uh, yeah, all about it. Well, I'm going to have to stop by next week when I'm in Las Vegas for a cup of, of a Vendetta uh, brew and, uh, and, try, and try it for myself. <laughs> just I, let me know, man. I got you. <laughs> I know he's an Nespresso guy like I am. He got an Nespresso machine from, I think, the best man at his wedding or something, and he swears by that thing, just like I do, Old Faithful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds about right. I don't have my espresso yet. I was thinking about getting a French press because I do got to mature in this coffee world because uh, I really can't start my day properly without one. So, Get the AeroPress. I recommend the AeroPress. For, if you're looking for just a single serve and you want something that you can take on the road, it's like a tube, basically, and it's super easy to use. So the AeroPress would be my, uh, my recommendation if you want to write that one down. At, uh... I'm making a note real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so I think 40 bucks on Amazon or something like that. Uh, Chris Curtis, the action man. This guy's 3-0 now in the UFC great story i mean it took forever for him to get to the uh, the ufc went into pfl fought fought in the deepest waters there was had retired i guess on two different occasions and finally worked his way into the ufc where he's looked phenomenal thus far this is the first time he was a favorite and he proved that uh the, he fit the bill unanimous decision victory over a very tough Rodolfo Vieira, who had never been an underdog in the ufc super impressive man uh stuffing 20 takedowns um has that got to be a record? It's got to be up I'm there. Not, I'm not sure. That, uh, I think so Woodley stuff like 22 so, against Demian Meyer, some crazy number, if I recall. Over five wow. rounds. Okay, crazy. Um, yeah, I, I was super impressed by by uh, Chris Curtis uh, yesterday. I think thought he looked great. thought he did did all the right things. Kind of started off a little slow. Um, I think Eric Nixick had some things to say in the corner about stop being nice to him. He's your opponent. And Chris Curtis came out there and started putting the beating on him. I thought in that third round a, a finish was headed this way, but... Credit to Hadolfo Vieira because uh, he was taking some shots. He's tough. He was staying right in there. He came to fight. That was a, it was a it was a great little battle. But uh, Chris Curtis is he's on a tear, doing all the right things. And I think that that's only like his third fight since he's been in, right? Yeah, third he's, fight. Uh, but I think it's man. his third fight in like four or five months, and he's just been running through everybody. Yeah, yeah, something ridiculous. And 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 he's kind of proven wrong that that he, that he has belonged this entire time. It, it's a shame it took him so long. Uh, I hope his career keeps keeps going the way it's going, man. It's a, uh, it's very impressive. Well, you know there are fighters like him, and uh, another example, someone in your division, Tony Gravely. Uh, they take really, they took so many tough fights on the regional scene that when they finally got to the UFC, they were well equipped to handle it. Like you see a lot of people that are on the contender series coming up and facing, you know, they'll come in with a four and zero, five and zero record. But you look at their level of competition that they faced. I don't think I think it's it's good on them that they get to the UFC because that's the dream. But I don't think it necessarily sets them up for success. A hundred percent, and that's something that that I've, that I've talked to with a few people about is, is having to develop into in the UFC and and grow your career properly and your own skill set for that matter. In the UFC, is very hard because one mistake can literally cost you cost you everything. And now it's two steps forward, three steps back, and and it's 
it's very, very hard. It's, it's like, like you were saying, sometimes it is good to take that, to take the long route and really develop and really hone who you are as a fighter and, and then come in there and, and have these great performances just like that. Um, I think we're going to see more of the same from Chris Curtis. He, he, his mind is, has been hardened into what he can do outside of the UFC. And I think now it, it kept that hunger alive that he wasn't in the, in the UFC. Now that he is, you're seeing all of it come to fruition. Well, the city kickboxing train has left the station en route to International Fight Week, where you've got Israel and Alexander Volkanovsky, as well as Brad Riddell competing. Carlos Elberg makes it a quick night. TKO against Stefan and Chukwi, and then immediately goes and starts training with Israel, like getting him prepared for, for his fight uh, next week. He's, I mean, you fighters are all a very different breed than the rest of us, but uh, it just goes to show the commitment that these guys have to one another's uh, success. And I just thought that was a phenomenal win for him over Stefan. 100%. And I, I love the fact that he hit him with that uh, kind of fake jab, turned it into a hook at the last minute. That's one of my favorite little techniques. Uh, and hit him with that, rocked him with it, and that was the beginning of the end for him. Uh, he looks sharp. He, I'm hoping he can stay consistent with uh, with those type of performances because I really like the dude. I like his mindset. And like you were saying, uh, CKB has got some – man, they got <laughs> – they're doing all the right things right now. It's, uh, it's kind of terrifying. I hope they don't have very many bantamweights. Well, Kai Kara France is going to stay at flyweight, it seems. But, uh, yeah, that that, uh, that strike was very similar to the one you landed on Luis Smolka, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that one was a right hand um, coming from the clinch on uh, Jonathan Martinez, though, early. That was one of the first strikes that I landed. I kind of faked, faked the jab to the high left side and came around on the left hook on, on his right side. Um, it's it's something I, I rep that out constantly in practice. And I landed it in a way that I was like, oh, I heard him. Immediately went right back to throwing some kicks. I was like, okay, I'll have to take my time with it a little bit. Yeah, maybe that's what I was thinking of was your last fight against, uh, against Jonathan. That, um, I mean, I don't want to, to take away from this recap, but that fight seemed like a frustrating one for you because it seemed like you were doing all the right things. You were staying patient. You were landing big strikes on him, but he just stayed in your face. Yeah, he stayed, he stayed right at that zone where it was uh, in and out of my face. Like, it was out of my face just enough that I couldn't hit him consistently and then in my face right when he needed to be. So kudos to him for, for figuring, that, figuring that out, that, that range out so early and getting comfortable there. Um, I, it was our plan to be pressing the pace early and it took me, took me longer to get started on, on that than, than I'd like. I think the third round um, was, was a little more my style and what, what we wanted to see. And it just, uh, he, he did a good job keeping me at, at, in his range, right, right outside, like, like I was saying, right outside of, right outside of in my face, but in my face when he needed to be, it was a, uh, I'll be all right. No, he's a, he's a difficult matchup. I don't know why Jason House keeps putting you up against all these Iridium guys. I mean, I know he manages most of the most of the uh, the promotion, but it seems like that's that's what he's stuck with. He, he had Smolka, and then you had Martinez. Like, what, what's next? Are you going to face O'Day Osborne? I know he's a training partner of yours. What like what's well, O'Day's a, a flyweight though, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Gutierrez before that too. Was oh, yeah, Gutierrez guy that I had. Uh, <laughs> I, I was thinking about about texting Jason and asking him if Factory X has another 135er that likes kicks. I've got to give it one over on one of these guys, so it's going to be one of them in the future again. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, do you have do you have them lined <laughs> up just yet? I mean, that you're allowed to share? Uh, nothing yet. Uh, I'm I'm waiting. I'm I'm back in the gym training my ass off. Excuse the language. Uh, training hard every day. Um, just waiting. Just just hoping to get back in there. Like was, uh, sooner rather than later. I still kind of want to get on that Salt Lake card August 20th, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, that's is that near Idaho? So I'm I'm Canadian, so pardon my ignorance. I didn't take U.S. geography, but that's that's nearby. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, exactly. And and we don't really the UFC doesn't really have any hometown guys on there right now. So it's close enough to Boise area where I think um, 
bunch of my family and friends and supporters would would make that trip and i i can pretend i'm the hometown guy over there and and i would like that but we'll see well if anyone can get it done it's your uh, it's your manager jason house one of the best in the business uh charlotte nerdebeck defeats tj brown uh 29 28 on all cards this this guy's really tough and i think that I don't know if you know this, but he actually added, I think it was like 10 or 15 wins to his record since his last fight because somebody had gone and looked and found a bunch of fights that weren't accounted for in topology. So ended up having a lot more experience than I think TJ Brown uh, would have given him credit for. But he looked really good, stayed in TJ's face for the entire fight. Yeah, that fight, honestly, looked a little similar to what we saw in the main event. Uh, some high-level scrambles, some good good grappling offense and defense, uh, good solid strikes on the feet. I, I thought that was a fun fight. Before I saw the main event, I thought that, I thought that one was almost guaranteed for fight of the night. Yeah, definitely a solid fight, and I think that's a, a solid comparison. Those guys were just um, very evenly matched, which you always love to see. Uh, Sergey Morozov, again, going back to your division, Kazakhstan doing big things right now in the UFC, defeats uh, Rowley and Paiva. Very, very tough matchup for Morozov. Got tagged in the first round, but ended up coming back and winning two and three pretty handily. Yeah, I thought I thought that was a good fight. Both those guys showed that they were tough. They both showed their like willingness to hit and get hit. Um, I thought that was a fun fight. Uh, literally, I think before the first round was over, though, I had, I had already texted uh, Jason saying that I'll fight either one of these guys. Uh, it, it didn't matter matter to me who won. Um, I thought that was a great fight, though. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. I kind I thought uh, Paiva had edged it out slightly, so that was another. It was a kind of off decision for me, but uh, it, it was it was close enough. It's I mean nobody can be screaming robbery. Which round did you give Paiva out of curiosity outside of the first? Uh, for sure, the first. I thought the second. I thought he edged. For whatever reason, I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to think back to what exactly it was in the second. I thought I thought uh, Morozov needed a finish in the last round though. Yeah, it's hard for me to remember. I just I just remember that uh, it was a lot closer that second round, obviously than the first round, which was kind of a runaway round for uh, for Paiva. Uh, Cody Durden knocks yes. out uh, JP Bays shortly over one minute into the first round. I feel bad for JP. I mean, he's been uh, it's actually a UFC record. Sadly, he's been knocked knocked down eight times in his last three fights. It's the most over that any fighter's ever been knocked down in a stretch of three fights. So. Um, I don't know if we're going to see him again in the UFC. I hope we do. Uh, I thought he showed a lot of promise in the Contender Series, but that, you know, t- very tough night for him. Yeah, it, it, extremely tough. And I see him on a regular basis, and I kind of I, I recognize the skills that that he has on hand. Uh, I think he, he unfortunately he hasn't got he hasn't really got the right fight to to kind of showcase those skills. And I read that same exact stat that you were just talking about. I thought that was a uh, very interesting and. I, 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 don't, I don't know if we'll see him again. That, that, reading that stat, that, that stat, sorry, it, uh, yeah, it made me think that right away. So um, I hope so. I like the dude. I think he's got some good skill. Um, he might have to do a little bit of soul searching and get some of the stuff to align a little bit better for him. But he's definitely, I think he definitely has the skill to perform well. It's just, uh, man, some of these guys, when, when, it, when intense behind their actions, there's not a lot you can do. And I mean, taking that fight against Montel Jackson, as good as he looked in that first round, and Montel's a huge bantamweight. Um, JP, obviously, a natural flyweight. I, I mean, you, you want to take those fights and, and make money, get your show money. But I just think he was way in, you know, in way over his head as the fight drew, drew on. And those were where the majority of those knockdowns came from. I think it was four in that single fight. Yeah, yeah. Um, Montel, I think, holds a record now for most knockdowns in a bantamweight fight, if I, if I remember right. Um, yeah, I, I thought r- right away JP was taking him down. And I know Montel's like a national champion. Rest, I was blown away by that, like. I did not see did not see that happening, and and JP had these these glimpses of doing things right, but like you were saying, Montel's just such a big bandweight. Uh, if he wants to throw you off of him and then hit you real hard, it's gonna be hard to stop it. 
All right, another bantamweight fight. Mario Bautista, I thought, looked career best against Brian Kelleher, who's not an easy out, especially to submit him like that. Uh, fantastic performance by Mario Bautista, who I think needed it. I think he fought a teammate of yours, if I'm not mistaken, on short notice last time around, who gave him a very tough fight. But uh, this time around, Bautista was really on. Yeah, and, and to, to me, that, that kind of that kind of shows uh, some of the promise that uh, Jay Perrin has. That's my teammate you were talking about. Um, they, they went three rounds in a hard-fought little battle. Uh, yeah, like you were saying, Bautista. That was like a career-defining fight for him. I think he he looked he looked phenomenal. He looked sharp. He looked strong everywhere. He made all the right decisions. Uh, literally, like no holes in his game. After seeing that, he's gonna be gonna be whoever he gets next. I say match him and Mar- Martinez up. That'll be fun. Yeah, I like that. Gets I like next, that. Man, Absolutely. He's looked fantastic. Um, and finally, Vanessa Demopoulos defeats Jin Yu Frey by split decision. A very, very controversial uh, fight, it seems, uh, in terms of the scorecards. Uh, I'm not really sure how you gave Vanessa all three rounds. I thought the first round at least was very clear for Frey. But uh, the other two, I think, is up in the air. I, I think you could have given those to Demopoulos. just seems like uh, giving that first round to her didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I, I I agree completely. I was kind of I was a little, little by that decision because I thought I thought pretty I don't want to say handily, but it was close without a doubt. I thought uh, Jen had, had the edge, so I thought they both looked very good. They both looked improved. So she looked a lot better than I than I. She striking really cleaned up a lot, um, but Jen looked big and mean and consistently able to able to kind of hit, hit her hard. Um, I thought I thought that was the difference there, but clearly the judges are might be having a little bit different different criteria than what I use. Well, I've I've been saying recently when you're seeing um, unranked um, female fighters go against each other, and one of them is like a two or more to one favorite, you're almost better to just auto bet the other side because it seems like there's been a real trend two last weekend, one this weekend where you have a, a pretty sizable underdog coming through because of scorecards. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. It's real interesting. I don't know if like a like there needs to be some sort of course that some of these judges have to have to go through in order to get approved to be a judge, but it doesn't seem like a lot of consistency with with good calls. It's, it's consistent with some off the wall. So, no. Um, I hope we see. You know, um, I thought I thought she looked improved from from what we'd seen. Um, and her being the Adamweight champion and Victor prior, uh, I I'd seen a little bit of her and. I think she's, she's definitely got some skill. So I hope we see her again. Well, what I chalk it up to is in the women's strawweight division, um, you don't see a lot of like immediate damage or knockdowns um, in the division. So when you get two fighters that are pretty evenly matched, even if the odds indicate that one you know, is, is, is a much bigger favorite than the other, I feel like the judges have a lot of trouble discerning who's doing the real damage in that fight because, I mean, like your division, like the men's flyweight division, women's flyweight division, very frenetic pace, a lot of volume. I mean, your division has a lot more knockdowns, of course, than the, the women's strawweight and flyweight divisions, but it's harder for the judges to kind of discern what's doing the real damage in the rounds. And I think that's kind of where it gets a little bit sticky and why when you're looking at betting lines that are so kind of far apart for, for mostly even, again, if they're both unranked, mostly evenly uh, matched fights because the, the divisions aren't all that deep, I think that that's where you kind of see this kind of thing play out. Right, I, I, I really, uh, that's that's one way that I thought maybe open scoring as the fights were going would be would be an interesting interesting move because now maybe we'd know like oh, okay th- these judges aren't aren't appreciating what I was trying to do maybe I I've got to change some things for this last round and and adjust accordingly I think oh, open scoring might be an interesting little way that, um, 
or maybe a little more education on what exactly is a significant strike doesn't it, it's hard to see where they're putting their their weight you know what i mean like like what are they what are they really interested in and why are they thinking that this person won this round for this person wasn't good enough for what it it at least there's too much up in the air for me, and I think we just need to we need to get that criteria a little smoothed out. Well, I think you're onto something there. I think education is really the big thing for this. I mean, I think even if there's open scoring, you're still going to see scorecards that are a little bit wacky. To me, I think the UFC should hire yeah. a judge full time for the broadcast team, and just after every round, say have them sit cage side and and have them say, you know, here's what I saw in this round. And that's why I would score for this person based on the criteria, just to give people a better understanding of what's going on. I think that with each subsequent broadcast, people would be more and more educated on the subject. A hundred percent. That's why we need some sort of a DVD or course or something. So many people have to go to school for things. Why not? Why not? Where you're, you literally half of people's livelihood on the line. It doesn't seem doesn't seem fair. Well, I would recommend Mark Goddard's course. Very, very helpful. I've, I've watched uh, his video on judging, and uh, I think he does a great job kind of breaking it down and explaining uh, how the fights are scored. It helped me a lot in terms of learning um, how the fights are scored. So I would like to see that. I just Again, I think education, even for the judges, like you said, to take courses again to kind of um, sharpen up, maybe take a quiz, look at some previous rounds from maybe some regional scene fights that they, they wouldn't have seen in the past. Again, I, again education, education, education. That's what I, uh, what I preach for, uh, for this particular subject. I agree. Um, I think you're on something. I can see some, see something like that here real soon, where there's, like you were saying, like actual something that beat themselves. It does seem to be a, a very popular topic of conversation as of late. Um, well, thank you for doing this, Vince. Really appreciate it. Um, you can find Vince on social media at Vandetta. That's with an A one three five. Um, you don't have anything coming up, but hopefully soon they'll get you matched up real quick with uh, with somebody who um, you know who who who. Who plays into your game? I think I, I, I like to see you in, in more striking-based fights because I think that your striking is very, very advanced, and it's uh, it's a real pr- uh, pleasure to watch when you're in there. I appreciate that, that a lot. Thank you. Uh, I'm I'm literally I'm spending every day trying to show, trying to activate more of what I can really do other than just because uh, I think uh, I was a video game character. All my stats are pretty. Cool. We're only ever seeing one stat. That's the striking. Um, Look, I look to I look to, I look to mix some things in the future and really next fight I'm making my mark. It's, it's I'm really I was wanting to do a lot of learning in the UFC and uh, uh, I'm still here and I I'm having and to the top. So and you were on the very last card that we've had in this province of Ontario back in May of 2019, a win over Eamon Zahabi. So hopefully. If you are going to come back, it'll be back uh, in, in our backyard here in Ontario. We miss having fights in Canada, and we're looking forward to them coming back. That'll be fun. I love it. I thought that was great. People buying me up after the fight. I'm all about it. It signed me up. It's a great time. Well, I'm glad that we, uh, we stay true to our, uh, the stereotype about Canadians being very nice and that people bought you pizza. So kudos to the fine people of Ottawa. Uh, <laughs> thank you for doing this, Vince. Um, coming up next, we've got the MMA headlines with Nolan King of MMA Junkie. It's time for the headlines, and with that, I bring in one of the best reporters in mixed martial arts. He's Nolan King from MMA Junkie. You're taken aback by my statement? I see you, you leaning back when I say that. 
No, it's such a big compliment, man. Coming from you, I appreciate you uh, you having me on. It's nice. Uh, I don't think we've ever done this face to face like this. I've met you a few times in person, but uh, it's an honor, man. I'm excited to chat some MMA with you. Well, the reason for that is because we started a new format on the podcast last week, so you're only the second person to do, to do this with me. Period. So uh, you know, just oh, okay. That, if, if you want an explanation, that's why. <laughs> I'll take a silver medal. That works. First headline: Francis Ngannou tells TMZ that he's hopefully going to be able to return in either December of 2022 or early 2023. Now, I'm going to give you some odds here. I'm going to give you minus 150 on his next fight being in the UFC. Are you buying or selling? I'm buying that. You know, I think uh, I think he will fight in the UFC next. I don't see a scenario in which it, uh, you know, the boxing thing happens right away, especially considering the other fights or fight that is out there, which is John Jones. I think that that's the fight that the UFC wants. And obviously, Dana has not been thrilled about... Uh, thrilled about the idea of Francis doing boxing. I know Francis maybe has been a little bit more aggressive than other fighters that we've seen. He seems to be very, uh, you know, sticking with it. He's not given up his effort to kind of uh, publicly throw out there that this is what he wants to do is boxing. Um, but for me, I think that the UFC is going to lock him in. I think they want him uh, at least to have one more, uh, you know, before they start, before he gets to that level where they can kind of give him the superstar treatment and say, hey, you know, maybe we'll get involved some. some with somebody else or whatever and, and, and do the boxing thing. But uh, for me, yeah, I think Francis' next fight is definitely going to be the UFC. What I'm curious about is his contract situation because I keep hearing at the end of the year he's out of his contract. I don't know how accurate that is or if the UFC has some sort of matching window, but that to me makes it very curious because it seems like Tyson Fury is very interested in boxing against Francis Ngannou, but at the same time he says he wants half a billion dollars to box somebody. So I don't know if that money is uh, available out there. That's the part about it that I'm kind of hung up on is – you know, are they going to be able to come to terms with Francis to stay in the UFC? I'm sure they're going to do an interim heavyweight championship, if I had to guess. It seems like Stipe versus John Jones would be the direction they go in. And if Jones ends up winning that fight, Francis versus John Jones is a mega fight that I think they could really sell. But the question is, with both John Jones and Francis Ngannou looking for a lot of money, is that something mm. that the UFC is going to be willing to do? Well, I think it would be really interesting. You know, again, I think uh, we're getting to the point in time where some of these fighters, the negotiations that they're having seem like they're willing to sacrifice a little bit in the short term to try to get a better deal in the long term or to put pressure on the UFC. And, you know, the UFC does, obviously, we talk about it over and over again. I'm sure some people are nauseated us hearing us say this, but like the UFC contracts are built in a way that really does uh, limit the options of, of the individual athletes. And so there has to be, you know, a lot of times fighters would have to make these sacrifices where they wait out their contract. And so most guys aren't willing to do that. You know, most guys, a lot of the guys can't afford to do that or they're not big enough names where they're just kind of indisposable pieces for the UFC. But for somebody like Francis, for somebody like John, those are the guys that if they were to, to, to sacrifice and take some, uh, you know, not take some income or whatever you want to call it, sacrifice some income so that they sit on the shelf for a little bit longer, uh, that's where it's going to be interesting. I, you know, I can't remember the last time that we've really seen something like this, so I'm interested to see what the, the UFC's response to that is. You know, are they just going to let Francis just walk off into free agency? You know, I, I would think that that would be very surprising to me. I think that they would be more willing to shell up. Just for, think about the public optics of the whole thing. Like, do they want it to be that the heavyweight champion of the world just walked away because they couldn't get a deal done? I don't think so. So for me, I, I kind of... Um, think that they're I'm very interested to see what happens because it is a bit of uncharted territory um, but I, I kind of like in the back of my mind think that maybe this will be the leverage that Francis or John needs in order to kind of get those maybe not 
you know, a ridiculous amount of money, but more money than they're making now, fair amount of money for them to, to stick with the UFC and, and to agree to fight again. You were in beautiful Uncasville, Connecticut this past weekend for Bellator's card. Johnny Eblen defeats uh, Gegard Mousasi in dominant fashion, five straight rounds. Now, immediately after he wins, I'm seeing people on social media say, oh, Eblen couldn't hang with the top five guys at middleweight in the UFC. But like a week ago, people were saying Gegard Mousasi would beat Israel. So which one is it here? I mean, personally, I think Eblen could hang with any of those guys. Yeah, me too. You know, I think that that's what people need to understand is there's this whole idea. And like for me, like if you, if you were to ask me right now, I'll be honest with you, if you were like Israel Adesanya versus Johnny Eblen, who's going to win? I would pick Israel Adesanya. But with that being said, for you to say that a guy like Johnny Eblen uh, wouldn't be able to compete with the top five in the UFC would be crazy town for me. You know, I think you go, you look at what he did to Gegard Mousasi. This wasn't, you know, some blue chip wrestling prospect that Bellator has that came in and hugged Mousasi against the fence or took him down like we saw Rafael Lovato Jr. do and just control him kind of in a world that isn't his. He beat him on the feet, too, and his striking is, is a bit unorthodox. It still, you know, has some sharpening up that needs to occur. But he was winning the striking advantages on the feet or excuse me, the striking exchanges on the feet. He swept the judges' scorecards. He showed power in the past with some of the knockouts that he's had. And for me, I think that that was a, a tremendously impressive performance for a fighter who's continuing to get better. That was his first real test. You know, John Salter's been a Bellator middleweight contender for a little while, but let's face it, the Bellator middleweight division is not the best that they have. It's not a very, uh, you know, it's, it's building up. There's some guys on the come up, but like, one through 10 or the rankings, it's just not, compared to the other divisions, it's not as, as strong. But Gegard Mousasi is about as strong of a champion as Bellator had. And for Johnny Evelyn to go in there and beat him in his world is, is thoroughly impressive. And I have no no doubt that he could hang with the top five guys in the UFC. Yeah, I'm not even sure where he goes from here. And the interesting stat that I dug up on Saturday was that he has never lost a round in his professional mixed martial arts career, which is just hugely impressive. Um, so we'll see where he goes from here. But like you said, I think Mousasi is really the only legitimate heavyweight, oh, sorry, middleweight champion that Bellator's really had in, in some time. Like, somebody with real credentials that's beating all of, the, all of their different guys in the, in the middleweight division. Like, I just don't know where Evelyn goes from here because there's really nowhere else to go. I mean, he's the champion, but he's the champion of a division that has so few really high-quality fighters. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, you know, Bellator has a few guys coming up, Romero, Cotton, Dalton, Ross, but those guys are, you know, fights away from competing for a title. So, for me, I guess that you, you can look at there's a couple of options that I think will at least be placeholders that could build Evelyn Starr if he were to go out there and win. One of them, Yoel Romero, I know he's competing at 205, but the drop back down to 185 is not out of the question from, from my understanding. He even tweeted, uh, see you soon, boy, after uh, Evelyn won. So I'm assuming that you know he's interested in gold, even if it comes at the lighter weight class. And then the other guy is uh, coming up from the opposite direction, which would be Lorenz Larkin. You know, Recently, he's kind of uh, dabbled at 185. His next fight, he's going to be back at 170. But I think both those guys are names that Johnny Eblen could gain something from. You know, it's not him just going out there and fighting somebody that maybe is a, a middle tier, you know, Anatoly Tokov, who I know a lot of people think should be the next in line. Or uh, I'm saying talking about name recognition, middle tier name recognition or somebody that is a prospect that's on the come up. I think Larkin, Romero, I think that that builds Eblen's brand and is a fight that, the, that can slap those two faces on a poster, you know. Don't those guys train together at ATT? They do. You know, and that was what I was kind of surprised about was him saying that. But I mean, I guess ATT is kind of used to this at this point with uh, with so many fighters. We've seen it in the PFL coming up here. Uh, you know, a few uh, I forget who it is, like Akhmadov and somebody are going to be matched up. Right. They're their training partners. So uh, maybe ATT has their system down with all those coaches that they can uh, they can split them up. But 
seemed like uh, Yoel was definitely uh, interested. And, I, you know, I wish that that tweet had come uh, prior to, to Evelyn's press conference because I certainly would have asked him and got his reaction to it. I mentioned this to Vince Morales earlier in the show. It was interesting to see Pahumpa in Armand Sarukian's corner and then Mike Brown across the cage in Gamrot's corner. So, I mean, like you said, ATT are kind of used to this with so many different fighters in that gym. Yeah, for sure. I think when you have a, a gym that has that amount of fighters, like, you know, you, you have to have a system down, right? You have to have it be that these guys feel comfortable being there because I think back in the day, this would be kind of like grounds for fighters leaving. You know what I mean? Like somebody, whoever they, uh, I don't want to call them a B side, but you know, like for example, um, even actually now we saw with, uh, with, with Rafael Stocks when he, him and Pettis were entering the tournament where they were supposed to fight each other, you know, Rafael went out to, to Vegas and started training out there. Um, I think that that's kind of the more traditional approach. So it, I think it, benefits the gym to have a system in play where these guys don't feel like, you know, ooh, if I become a contender, this is going to get weird and I might have to leave. Like, let's figure this out. We have a big gym. You have all day to train there. We'll figure it out, um, you know, and be professional about this. So, uh, yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of Rafael Stotts, his next task is going to be against Danny Sabatello, who competed this past weekend. Got a win over Leandro Ego. Uh, awesome win for him. But, I mean, this guy's just the ultimate heel because not only does he talk trash, he also fights in a way that is not really fan-friendly. He just dominates his, his opponents, smothers them, makes it impossible for them to breathe, suffocates them, really, with his top control. It's the kind of fight that, you know, a lot of the fans didn't really love, but I think Sabatello loves that. He eats that up. I think this is probably a gift for Bellator, to have a guy like Sabatello really raise the profile of their champion, which is weird to say in Rafael's thoughts, because when this guy talks, it seems like people are paying attention. Now, uh, I'm eager to see how this one plays out, because... Sabatello could be your new champion after this next fight. The, the, the belt will be, or at least the interim champion, the belt will be on the line. Um, what do you think of Sabatello and what are his chances against Dots? Yeah, I mean, I think he's great. I think he's what Bellator needs. We haven't had, you know, I say this all the time to people there. It's like you, you look at the UFC and their, their face-offs and stuff and people are getting separated. And, you know, with the outside of like AJ McKee and Patricio Pitbull press conference last year where things got a little physical and things were, waters were knocked over and stuff like uh, and Sabah Homasi, who, who every way and you know gets in his opponent's faces. There isn't really a guy that's like super trash talk, super you know try to get get in his opponent's head, or somebody at least that's good at it. And I think for Danny Sabatello to kind of emerge as that guy for Bellator is great for their promotion. And um, you know, in that arena, yeah, I spent 20 weeks, I think, in uh, over the span of the pandemic there, from like mid 2020 to 2021. I've done a few shows at Mohegan Sun since then, since they've been back. I think that. The, the exchanges on the microphone between Danny Sabatello and Rafael Stotts was some of the loudest uh, crowd interaction and crowd cheering and booing that I've heard in the, all those weeks that I was there. Granted, a lot of them didn't have fans, but the ones that did have fans, that the, people were digging it. People were, you know, Rafael Stotts was way over. Uh, Sabatello, people really didn't like him. They just loved booing him. So I think that's great for Bellator. I mean, that just must be money to Scott Coker's ears. And I think it's a perfect foil. Both guys are skilled in the trash talk department. They're very different in the way that they do it. I think Stotts is is very funny character. Uh, Sabatello is, you know, the bad guy, but I, I find him comical as well. And I think it's a perfect matchup for Bellator. These are the type of things that I think they strive to see as these homegrown guys, if you want to call them that, uh, you know, getting matched up against each other and being able to sell a fight. And to answer your question, I think Sabatello does have a good chance because guess what? Nobody's been able to figure out how to get him off them. You know, like Higo had a little bit of success in the second round on Friday, but that was the most that we've seen. Other than that, Danny Sabatello has been the wettest blanket of all time. People cannot get him off. So I'm very intrigued to see what, uh, you know, I think they both pose challenges for the other that perhaps the other hasn't seen yet. So I think it's a great fight. Uh, we don't have a date on it yet, but I can't wait to see it when it happens. 
Yeah, what's interesting to me is I think Sabatella was like a minus 150 favorite over Higo. And then by the time it closed, he was like minus 500 almost, maybe minus mm. 600. He was a huge favorite. I think Stotts will open as a favorite. But if you had to guess, do you think that when the fight rolls around, that Sabatello could potentially be the favorite against Stotts? It's possible, man. You know, I, I kind of still think Stotts will keep that line, the, the favorite line, um, just because I think maybe people look at him as a bit more uh, versatile and somebody that's, uh, you know, I think no offense to Leandro Higo, no offense to um, Brett Johns, no offense to, uh, who's the other person? Uh, Jornel Lugo that, that Sabatello beat. But I just think, you know, when you look at Stotts' more recent fights, I think people probably have a little bit more faith in him. Honestly, the, the Johns win at the time was was the one that I think really solidified Sabatello as like, this guy's good. You know, it wasn't just uh, he came in and fought somebody nobody heard of. Like, he beat a good guy off the bat. So maybe take Brett Johns out of that. But Jornel Lugo, Leandro Higo, I, I don't think people view them in the same light as Rafael and Stotts. I think people give Stotts a little bit more. Uh, they, they have him higher up on the pedestal. Obviously, he's got the interim title. Um, you know, he's got a big win coming off a big win over Juan Archuleta uh, on the feet. So for me, I think maybe um, people are kind of viewing Sabatello still as a one trick pony. Um, we haven't really seen him deal with adversity, so it's kind of hard to tell even what his Achilles heels like are, what his issues are. So I think maybe in people's minds, they think like, OK, there's something out there that can be exposed by a guy that's so well-rounded like Rafael and Stotts. But we'll see, man. I, I think Stotts will still close as the favorite, but I think it will be a, a close fight. This Friday is Canada Day, and sadly, the great Canadian hope, Julia Budd, pulled out of her fight against Kayla Harrison. She's being replaced by Caitlin Young. Now, speaking of odds, how do you open this? Well, what are the, what's the open, if you want to make the opener for this, Kayla Harrison against Caitlin Young, what are you opening it at? I don't even know at this point, man. I feel like every time we see Kayla fight it, uh, the line gets even crazier. I don't, I don't know. Ten to, you know, minus 1,000, minus 1,200 at this point, I mean... For me, uh, no offense to, to Caitlin Young, but I think anybody that would have been able to be plugged into this slot against Kayla Harrison that was not named Julia Budd would probably get that that sort of treatment. Um, and I feel like, again, it's just we're seeing um, for MMA fans, I think it's like seeing the same thing over and over again a bit. Super bummed uh, that, that Julia Budd pulled out. I thought I think that would have been uh, even though Julia is coming off a loss, I think that that would have been. Um, something that, that fans would have been intrigued about. You know, Julia's got the championship experience. She's been in there with Chris Cyborg. She's the closest thing I think that we've seen, the closest connection that, that Kayla would have to getting in there against somebody that is the sort of Chris Chris Cyborg or Amanda Nunes level fighter. You know, it's kind of like one degree of separation between them. So um, it's a bummer, man. You know, I think uh, it's it's no offense to Caitlin Young, but I, I think we're kind of, at least for me, it's it's like, okay, here we are again. I'm going to say minus 3,000. I think the odds are going to open today. They might open shorter than that, but I think we're going to see a real boxing line here, and I think it, it could balloon all the way up to like minus 6,000. I, I honestly do, and I hate to say it, because I, Caitlin Young is a pioneer of uh, women's mixed martial arts, but she's also a 500 fighter against arguably one of the best pound-for-pound, pound, I mean, not arguably, but one of the best pound-for-pound pound female fighters in the sport right now. So eh, it's going to be tough skating for Caitlin Young. Um, PFL this past week, um, Clitson Abreu goes 2-0 and in the first two rounds, and you have two fighters that are 1-1, one and one, one of whom who he defeated, advancing to the playoffs while Clitson's out on the sidelines. Do you think that the PFL needs to change the way that they're seeding these playoffs um, based on what we saw, I guess, in this particular bracket specifically? Yeah, I think there's a lot of... Uh, it's kind of weird because we've, we've had a few seasons in PFL now where I was like getting comfortable with the whole thing. And I feel like this season, for some reason, has made me like very uncomfortable with the way that the whole there's there's a number of different issues. I feel like whether it's regular season 
um, the alternates coming in and, and, you know, like Carlos Leal coming in and, and really pu- beating up the defending champion, or if you want to call him defending, the, the prior champion, Ray Cooper, like just totally taking it to him. And then they're like, eh, yeah, no, you know, you, you're going to be an alternate still from here on out. I'm like, wait, what? Like this guy just came in and beat the champion. Like, how is he not in the tournament? Um, I see that issue. I see the issue of the fact that it seems like these bigger name guys, like, you know, somebody pulls, I'm just going to use an example, like Anthony Pettis pulls out, right? And they say, okay, well, we're going to move him to a card that has, you know, doesn't have his weight class, but he's still going to fight because he didn't get to fight the last one. Like, it seems like an un- uneven playing field. Like, you wouldn't do that for Ronaldo, Ronaldo Exxon, who fought on the card on Friday. If he pulled out of that fight, you wouldn't be moving it down the line. So, I think there's a lot of subjectiveness to this. And then also the playoff seating, like you said, it seems kind of just bizarre. Like, I, I don't know what they can do to, to make it a little bit more fair or more like, I don't know, have some momentum or have something that seems like it would it would the frame of mind that we have when we watch other sports like that sort of um, that that sort of uh, line of thinking, that sort of the way things play out. I think for me, I would like to see a little bit more consistency and a little bit more structure and a little bit more uh, less you know, uh, subjectiveness and more objectiveness going forward. I think there's a lot of room for improvement here. I recognize that this is something that we haven't seen from other promotions. I cut them some slack, but to me, I think uh, come next season, I'd like to see some tweaks and changes. Well, I've got some good news for you because I was with PFL chairman and founder Don Davis last week, and I, I posed the specifically the Carlos Leal issue to him because I think that that is, he beats the champion, and now he's not going to get a second fight in the tournament? So let's just say I, I, I gave him a suggestion on how to fix that. He's, that suggestion apparently has been rubber stamped and we're going to see changes. I don't know when, but likely next season was, uh, on that front. Was your suggestion to add a fight? No, um, I don't want to give away the suggestion because that's what's okay. going to be announced okay. at some point in time. But uh, yeah, cool. so that's, that's being fixed at, at the very least. But this Clinton Abreu thing, I mean, I understand they want to value finishes and that they want to prioritize that, but... If you're going to be left out of the playoffs, you haven't lost a fight, and you're beating a guy who's in the playoffs. I mean, that's if we're going to do MMA math, that's that doesn't work. That doesn't work out. That's that's one yeah. plus one equals three type stuff. Uh, Mackenzie Dern wants an interim title bout against Zhang Wei Li. Now I don't know if an interim title bout's going to be made. I know that uh, Esparza is injured. Uh, I'm not sure when she'd be ready. But if you were to make an interim title fight at 115 pounds, what would it be? It's tough, man. You know, I think obviously uh, Zhang Weili would have to be one of them. And, you know, I guess Marina would have to be the other one. Right. So for me, it's 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 uh, you know, it's kind of that situation is interesting. I think that the the um, the threshold for for the UFC to start implementing interim titles has become too small. Right. Like, I think the amount, the window of time that they're like, all right, interim belt. We're starting to see this at like a ridiculous clip. I think before we would get mad sometimes when like somebody got hurt that would be out for six months. We're like, really? You're already, you know, you're already implementing an interim title. And uh, so now all of a sudden they're, um, you know, they're they're just throwing any champion that's not ready at the exact time that they want. It seems like they're just throwing out an interim belt. And I mean, I guess it's good for the fighters. Like, you know, one of them gets to go into, uh, you know, a title fight with the championship pay already like they, they get to go in with pay-per-view points and stuff which they wouldn't usually do granted they're fighting an extra time um but i don't know i just don't i don't like that whole situation i think that honestly what screwed it up to a certain degree is that the ufc's you know contractually obligated to put a certain amount of title fights in abu dhabi per card like that makes them have to have these these i think that's part of the reason the sandhagen peter yan fight was a title fight an interim title fight 
Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't really like the whole situation, I guess, um, to answer your question, that's first and foremost. Um, but I think that the other, the other contenders are definitely carved out there as, as who I would book. I'm on team interim. I, and, and I have been for years. I've been on like an island here. Make as many interim titles as you want. I mean, basically, you're just guaranteeing someone the number one spot. And you're giving them championship pay. Everybody kind of wins here. I mean, listen, does it diminish the value of the title? Not really, because ultimately we're going to see who the best is anyways eventually. So team interim. That's, that's always oh, been. Wow. I've You're always been team interim. Hashtag team interim. Let's get it trending. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, guess, I guess for me, the thing is that I don't like is I feel like it's being le- like used as leverage a little bit. Right. I think that like when there's a, you know, a month between Francis and Ganu when he wants to come back and when the UFC wants to come back and they're like, Nah, we're going to put you on the shelf and have this other guy, you know, these other two guys fight like you're not here. I kind of think that's what's going on with Carlos Esparza, too. So, okay, I, I get where you're coming from. I think maybe, you know, if a champion's out for six months past the point or four months past the point, you know, it's fair. It seems kind of arbitrary to me, but if it helps the fighters out, if it gives them a bonus, I'm fine with it. But I also think it's being kind of used as a bit of a, a negotiating tool by the UFC to to get, you know, fighters, to, the champions to, to come back sooner and, and fight off their timeline, so to speak. Jake Paul. I respect, oh. I respect your team interim stance. I respect it. Team interim. Let's go. Uh, okay. Jake Paul has been rebooked against Tommy Fury. And I know this isn't MMA, so I'm just going to find out from your perspective on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being don't care at all, 10 being really, really care, which I'm sure you're not going to fall under. Where, where, where are you on the spectrum here when it comes to this Jake Paul boxing match? I'm like a five, you know, I think just honestly, the the Jake Paul versus a actual boxer selling point might be the more interesting um, storyline that I've had in a, for the Jake Paul saga, maybe ever for me, at least, you know, I think as much as uh, these freak show fights do capture me, I am a sucker for them. I say ahead of time, oh, this is dumb. This is stupid. Why is he fighting Ben Askren? And then when it's time to watch it, I'm like, OK, I'm definitely tuning into this and I'm kind of actually weirdly excited for this. But for this, I think that there's some justification to be interested because he is fighting somebody that is a boxer you got to go back and look at the people he's fought before nobody none of the people that he has fought have had one pro boxing win at the you know at the time that they fought him so this is a this is a big step up and um you know i'm not like a boxing diehard i couldn't i couldn't tell you like 10 fun facts about tommy fury but i think the fact that he's fighting somebody that has you know a boxing background that has done this as a professional that if jake paul didn't exist would be doing this would be going down you know, the uh, the road to try to become one of the best in the world and to compete at a high level and be on pay-per-view. And that's the guy Jake Paul's fighting. So that's kind of the selling point for me. Um, I do feel like he's lost some steam recently, like in general. Um, I think maybe that last, you know, the, the Woodley saga, just kind of the way the first fight went down and then how boring the second fight was up until the knockout maybe has something to do with it. So that brings me down in, in terms of maybe, you know, when it's time to watch it, I won't have that built-up level of interest. Um, but I am intrigued to see him fight somebody that is a boxer. I'm like a maybe a one or two on this one. Like, I don't even watch like the highest of high level. Like, I'll watch some boxing, but like I didn't watch like Gervonta Davis's last fight, and that's like the that's like high high level boxing. So, am I gonna go out of my way to watch Jake Paul to see if he can box against a boxer? I I prefer to watch him box against you know retired like borderline retired mixed martial artists. I, like that's intriguing to me because that's kind of the circus atmosphere that I think they should build around him. I don't know much about Tommy Fury. I, I saw him box a mixed martial artist. I saw him uh, box Pretty Boy Taylor. So I mean like, you know, I just don't have a whole lot going into this that I care that much about. Like I want to see if I'm going to take the time to watch boxing because I cover MMA of course just like you do. I watch a ton of MMA. I watch regional MMA. I love it. I eat it all up. 
But with boxing, I'm so selective about what I watch that am I really going to take the time to watch Jake Paul box Tommy Fury when there's like no MMA crossover? It's probably a pass for me. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, for me, uh, it's, it's tough, right? Because we talk about this stuff and like it is part of my work. Like I do I do tune in because, you know, I have to cover it. So that there is that aspect of it, too. So maybe I'm talking myself into this a little bit. Um, and I am certainly, you know, when it came down to, uh, you know, maybe the 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 wood, the first Woodley fight, I think, was the, probably my highest level of uh, interest on the, the Jake Paul scale so far. And I think that kind of let me down. So I don't know, man, it's it is what it is. It does take the circus out of a circus fight, which I think, again, might to the to the casual viewer. Like the MMA versus Jake Paul thing has just kind of come to an end right now. And I think that that was a, you know, overall for the public's interest, that's probably a bigger selling point than Jake Paul versus a a regular boxer. So we'll see how it does. We'll see what kind of numbers come out for how this card did. Um, But I wouldn't be shocked, like you said, if if just a lot of people feel similarly to you that this this is the circus was what made it fun. And now that that's gone, will it be as interesting? Yeah, I think time will tell, right? Because you had more... I think for Jake Paul, the key for his success in terms of drawing is you're taking some from the boxing audience, you're taking some from the mixed martial arts audience, then you're taking some from just the Jake Paul audience. But it's not like Tommy Fury's a well-known boxer that people care that much about. And then there's no MMA tie-in, right? So it feels like he's selling himself short in terms of the amount of different um, draws that he can get. I guess the, the... you know, you know what I mean? Like the, the different variety yeah, totally. of drawing power that he has. Totally. So that, that's what I'm eager to see. Anyways, Nolan, thank you for this. I appreciate you. Unfortunately, you're not going to be in Vegas this week, so I won't be able to see you. Uh, but I will get to see the rest of your team. Uh, coming up next, we've got Dan Stupp from the Action Network doing a full preview of UFC 276 from a betting perspective. Uh, Nolan, thanks again for this. Appreciate you. Thanks, Aaron. You're the man. What an honor it is to be joined by Dan Stupp who now works for the Action Network, one of the founders of MMA Junkie, and he's joining me from the Appalachian Trail. You can see behind him, if, uh, if I do send this video out, you'll see that he's, uh, he's currently sitting there enjoying um, you know, a nice conversation with me. So I appreciate that, Dan. Hey, we get real good Wi-Fi up here on the mountain. <laughs> yeah, I figured as much. Well, let's take a look at the main event of this weekend's UFC 276 card. Uh, Israel Adesanya, minus 440. Jared Cannonier 310. Not a whole lot of value here. The only thing that I see that I might like is the Adesanya by decision prop, which is you're getting plus money on. But at the same time, he's been talking about trying to refine his killer instinct. And while Cannonier hasn't been finished at middleweight, he has been finished twice in his uh, UFC career. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you where I, I was looking for the value, you know, at minus 440 or so, minus 400 in that neighborhood. What that uh, suggests, an 80% chance of winning, which kind of seems in line. Um, you know, I'm... I'm whether to play this or not i think i want to see kind of uh how some of the prop marketing i think maybe a late stoppage um so it, that could be convincing i think after five rounds you know fourth or fifth round uh israel enough to, to put him away but you're right I, decision prop two we we know jared is durable um you know i, I just think you know adesanya here is just kind of a, a better everywhere and and i think that's going to play out as the fight wears on Adesanya round four is plus 1,400, round five is plus 1,900. Do you see anything there that you like in terms of, I mean, I was kind of thinking along the same lines as you, is as the fight goes on, maybe Cannonier will tire. He hasn't been in a whole lot of five-round fights, although in the ones he has been in, he, he has looked pretty fresh throughout. Yeah, no, I, I don't do a whole lot of those round four, round five bets. I know they're pretty popular with some folks. Um, for It's just the agony of Sky 
clearly kind of on his last leg in the fourth and fifth round and, and still hanging on to, to make it to the final bell. Uh, so those those uh, bets can be a little infuriating, um, but obviously that's why they have the I don't know. I know a lot of people just kind of automatically default to those round four and five stoppages. Uh, make a really good case for late and just kind of taking advantage of a, a tiring later on. And like you said, it, it seems uh, kind of plenty motivated to, to prove that he can, you know, stop fights and get the highlight reel stoppages. So maybe this is that kind of performance for him. And maybe when a spread comes out, the minus five and a half for Israel might be worth a look. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm going to clearly win rounds. And if it does go to this, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's up, you know, five points. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll track that one as, uh, as the week goes on. Um, Alexander Volkanovsky, minus 205. Max Holloway, plus 158. I will have a play on this one. Because even though I'm picking Volkanovsky to win, that Holloway by decision at plus 320 is just a little bit too uh, juicy for me to pass up. I think this is going to be a close fight as the last two have been. I think while I think Volkanovsky was the clear winner in the first one, I, I gave him the second bite, but it was such a close, close fight that I, this one's likely going to go to a decision. And if it does, I mean, what, what, what's the percentage that you would give Volkanovsky to win that decision? 55 to 60%? The odds on, on Holloway by decision are ref, that are reflected right now is like 26% or something along those lines. Um, so I'm going to take that just because I, I like the value there. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you made the, the case that I, I did too. I, I picked Volkanovski in, but if you're, you're placed in a bet, I, I think the value is clearly on, on Holloway. Um, you know, I see him winning this maybe 40 or 50% of the time. So uh, getting plus, you know, 150 plus 160 in that neighborhood. Uh, I think there's clearly value there. Um, I, I think Holloway, you know, throw out that first fight a bit. I don't know if that was necessarily kind of uh, the max that we're used to and the max that we usually get. Um, you know, obviously, our, arguably won that second fight. I don't think any either one of them has kind of changed enough, you know, just in their recent fights to to not put a lot of stock in that the, that second fight. Um, and if we're going strictly off that, you know, I, I think Max has pretty much a 50-50 shot of winning. So, you know, getting a line like plus 158 or in that neighborhood, um, it, it's just kind of too juicy to lay off of it. And I don't see him getting a decision here, even though he did uh, hurt Volkanovski pretty badly in the first round of their last fight. Uh, Volkanovski weathered that storm. Seems to be very durable. Uh, Alex Pereira, minus 130. Sean Strickland, plus 102. The one... Uh, prop that I really like here is the Pereira by decision prop at plus 440. You know, Sean Strickland's a very risk-averse fighter. As crazy as he is outside of the cage, he's very, very tempered in the cage. Likes to keep a distance um, that he's comfortable with. But the thing about Pereira is he's comfortable at every distance. He's one of the best kickboxers in the world right now. I think if this goes to a decision, um, I'm going to value the, the the power of Pereira. The one thing that, of course, is the X factor, I think, here is Strickland's wrestling and how often he implements that part of his game against Pereira. Yeah, I think Pereira, like you said, if he, he's going to win, you know, I, I think it's going to be decision. I think that would be the play if you're going to bet on him. I, you know, you mentioned that the wild card is definitely Strickland's wrestling. Um, you know, I I think he's going to know this is kind of a big enough fight where, um, you know, wins matter now more than entertaining the crowd and, and, and things like the win here. Um, and, and kind of this is a make or break fight, I guess, kind of for his uh, title contention in some ways. Um, so I'm that he really leans into the sling. I think getting Strickland at plus money, um, 
knew he was definitely going to lean into those rest skills or, or at least see if he's got advantage there uh, that line, but just not knowing if he's going to play that game or not, if he's going to get sucked into a kind of a, a slugfest with more technical uh, striker, who I think clearly has uh, an advantage on the feet, especially as the fight wears on. I think Strickland's just way too willing to, to eat shots and again, a, a losing formula. Um, so I, I, I would be a lot more comfortable and, and a lot more excited about the fight. Uh, but kind of as it is, it's really hard to get excited about a bet. Yeah, I see where you're coming from there for sure. Um, I think that, again, like if, if we knew that Strickland would definitely fall back on his wrestling, I think I'd be a lot more comfortable taking my dad price, but right. who knows with him, right? Uh, Sean O'Malley, minus 290. Pedro Munoz, plus 215. Now, if all of my predictions here come to fruition, we're going to have a very long main card because I like uh, O'Malley. <laughs> to win by decision at plus 200 here. Um, we've seen how durable Pedro Munoz is against just about everybody. O'Malley, while he's got great precision striking, isn't that great of a finisher when it comes to some of these more durable fighters? So um, that's the way that I'm leaning. I think O'Malley's going to be, be able to keep uh, Munoz at a good range and box him up. I'll take the plus 200 by decision. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely the, the way to play it there. Um, you, you know, Kind of for every O'Malley fight, we talk about the height and reach. I, I think especially in a, a matchup like this, it's going to be um, even more important. I think he's getting more comfortable kind of uh, learning to use how to or, or understanding how to use that reach. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I like him in this fight. I think O'Malley wins this probably pretty convincingly. convincingly. Uh, just the, the regular money line, I don't think there's a whole lot of value there. So I don't know. Maybe decision is the way to go. Uh, Munoz is a, a pretty durable fighter, and, and over a three-round fight, I, I think he can probably, hopefully, hang around, especially at that line. And uh, per reports added to the main card, Robbie Lawler, minus 136. Uh, the comeback on Brian Barberena, plus 108. I like the Lawler side here. I think that uh, he's just going to have, I think, the better technique. And while he's been facing a lot of tough opponents, save for you know Nick Diaz in his recent fight, I don't think Barbarina has been fighting the toughest opponent, and I don't think he's looked very good. I thought in his last fight he looked actually pretty solid in, in comparison to what I thought he was going to look against Matt Brown, but I th- I'm going to take Robbie Lawler in this one. I think that he's um, the, the odds are not indicative of just how much better he is than Barbarina. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of in strictly um, fade Robbie Lawler mode right now. I, I, I love Lawler. Like, like one of my first pay-per-view nights where I watched it live and, and didn't even rent the, the DVD, actually bought it. Uh, was the first Lawler-Diaz fight. So Lawler's kind of always had a, a special place in my MMA fan heart. But I, I just, I have no reason to think he's going to come into this fight, you know, showing new wrinkles in his game or having new motivation or anything like that. <clears throat> I actually put a lot of stock in Barbarina's fight with uh, Matt Brown. I, I just, you know, not being intimidated, kind of bringing the fight to a guy who's used to bringing fights to guys. Uh, I, just the overall toughness. I, I really like Barbarina in this spot. I mean, I hate picking against Lawler. You know, I'm one of the, the old school MMA fans who remembers these guys when they were uh, young pups uh, like Robbie Lawler. But I, I like Barbarina in this spot. And it's not so much I like Barbarina that much. I just, I, I really think kind of, you know, we've been saying it for years, but I think Lawler is just not going to come into this one super motivated or, or kind of in the shape he needs to hang with a guy like Barbarina over three rounds. Well, I'm glad that we're finally on opposing sides of things here, so uh, we can get some, get some good debate going. Uh, the Tarantula, Jalen Turner, minus 128. Brad Riddell, plus 100. Now, Turner's looked fantastic lately, and he's got so many great intangibles for this division, but I really like the dog money with Riddell, to be honest. I mean, he's been ranked fairly recently. I think he's been fighting the tougher competition. 
the competition that Turner's fought, I, honestly, a little bit flaky. Um, I think Jamie Malarkey's looked good, but I think he's fighting a weight class higher than he should be against the guy um, in Turner who's fighting probably a weight class lower than he should be. He's a huge 55er. Um, and another one of his wins was against Josh Kulabau, another 45er. So um, I think that we're just going to see a, a really tough opponent for Turner to face here in Riddell. Uh, I like the underdog money on him. Yeah, I, I actually like Turner here. I, you know, for me, it kind of comes down to the, what is it, seven or eight inches of height and reach. And, and the fact that you've got a fairly young fighter who's just quickly improving. Um, and then on top of that, just kind of having that, that swagger, that, that confidence. I, you know, I, I maybe put a little too much stock into that. But I think I, I like, you know, I like those cocky guys because when it comes time to uh, kind of the, the big fights, the you know, your, your first headliners are in this case, you know, a, a, a kind of a spot on a, a good spot on a big card. Um, you know, I, I don't think he's going to fade under the pressure. I, I don't think he's going to resort to a conservative game plan. Um, you know, with that said, he's still very hittable. I guess a guy like Riddell, I think, you know, I, I don't feel 100% confident in that pick. Just knowing that, uh, you know, Brad can kind of, you know, change the tra trajectory of a fight pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, again, it kind of comes back to, I think, Turner's kind of physical gifts, uh, that confidence, how how much he's really improving um, and just getting more comfortable in the cage, fight to fight. I, I think over the next three or four fights, he's really going to kind of establish himself as a real legit contender that people pay attention to. And I think it probably starts with this fight. You make some great points. I think the the biggest one there is, I mean, he's only 27 years old and he is getting so much better from fight to fight. How much better has he gotten since the last fight? I think that's going to be the big question right. here against the guy as tough as Riddell. Um, so I certainly don't blame you for looking at that. I mean, it's close to a pick em line, right? So if you like one side yeah. a lot, go with that side. Um, Ian Gary, minus 174. Gabe Green, plus 136. You know, Gabe Green fought a Canadian last time. Johan Linus is somebody who I saw so many good things from on the regional scene that I had to back him, even though I went against my own mantra of always taking Gabe Green when he's an underdog because this is a guy who's going to fight for your money. He's going to get in his opponent's face. He's going to land body shots. He's not going to let you off the hook. This is the exact kind of fight that Ian Gary wants right now or needs right now, really, to, to prove how good he is. Um, I'm not going to take a side here. I'm kind of passing on this one. But whenever I see a plus sign next to Gabe Green's name, I'm very, very tempted because of how he fights. Yeah, no, yeah, I think you made a, or laid out a pretty compelling case. And I think, you know, it it, it underscores my favorite here. I, I think he's going to have some success, success standing with kicks, um, you know, kind of knees up the middle. Um, his jab has looked really good lately. Um, you know, I think he's also got a pretty big height and reach advantage. Um, you know, I think the, the big thing for him is just not wearing himself out. Um, and kind of fading in that third round because a, a guy like Green could take advantage of that. Um, you know, I like Gary in this spot at the current line. I, I'm not seeing a, a, a whole lot of reason to bet him. Um, but it could be an enter. It could also be a, a good spot, you know, kind of keeping an eye on Gary and seeing how he's looking after one round. If you get the, the feeling that, you know, he blew a lot in that first row, that may be a good live betting opportunity for, uh, for Gabriel Green there. Yeah, because Gabe Green's a guy who's going to really push it down the stretch. In fact, I always like looking at Gabe Green round three lines because he just seems to be good for the mm -hmm. entirety of the fight. So that might be another uh, another angle if, if it's big enough. My, it could end up being like plus 2,000. If it is, I'll take a look at that. Um, Macy Barber minus 260. Jessica I plus 196. Uh, this is kind of a favorite pass for me, honestly. Like the, I, I would add Barber to parlays. I just don't see a great path for Jessica I in this fight. No, you, you nailed it. I, I, I don't see a whole lot of value there. I think the, 
early money's clearly been on Barber and, and for good reason. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm an Ohio person. I remember Jessica, I, uh, fighting, I think it was the NAA FS kind of a, a, yeah, Northern Ohio promotion. Um, so I, I've been following her career a long time. So it's not like I'm a, a Jessica, I hate her or anything. I just, I, I don't see her kind of getting up for the big fights or you're just not real sure what you're going to get. Um, if we knew exactly kind of which version of her would, would show up, I'd probably maybe feel a little bit better about it. Um, yeah, and kind of same thing with Barber. I, I, you know, she's looked good in her past couple fights. I, I, I want to kind of see her put a, some more sustained uh, success together. Um, you know, it, it probably comes down to what Barber can do in the, in the clinch and, and if she's able to control the fight there. But uh, again, you really never know with Jessica I, so it's probably a fight I'm going to stay away from. This is a compelling one. Andre Muniz minus two set two ninety five rather, or Uriah Hall plus two twenty. Muniz has just been smoking everybody so far, and I think if this gets to the ground, he's going to find a sub here. But Uriah Hall is so tough; it's really difficult to pull the trigger on somebody that's this big of a favorite over Uriah Hall. I want to see what the submission prop is. That's probably what I'll end up going with. No, yeah, that's, I was just going to say the, the current price is too steep. I want to see kind of what inside the distance and the, the submission props look like. Maybe a, a little play there. But uh, no, I, I really like uh, Maniz in this fight. I think he's going to probably cruise in this one. It's just figuring out exactly how he's going to win. Jim Miller minus 225. Cowboy Cerrone plus 172. See, the interesting thing for me here is that this is a welterweight fight. And while Cerrone's yeah. taking it on short notice, he's been in camp for two, two fights, basically, that have fallen apart in the last two months. So I think he's going to be as ready as he's ever going to be in terms of what he can do. And he's, I think he's going to have a massive size advantage here. So to me, this is a dog or pass, but I'm probably going to stay away altogether. I was going to say, if this were at lightweight, I would probably like, probably like Jim Miller up to about minus 400, about an 80% wow, that big. favorite. Wow. Yeah, I just and I don't know if it's just I, I kind of had that in my mindset when he was um, slated to fight uh, Joe Lazan. And I just kind of had that that storyline in my head that this is the way it's going to play out because we've been, you know, talking about Cerrone fighting for like a month now. Um, I, I, I think his best days are behind him. I don't see him getting motivated for fights. Um, you know, part of me was like this fight being a lot of weight going to benefit him. He's huge. Uh, Jim Miller's not going to be a very big welterweight, um, but honestly, kind of, I, I kind of come back to well, maybe that's even more motivation for Cerrone not to to get super, uh, you know, to take the camp as seriously as he can because the 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 weight cut's not going to be as much of a concern anymore. So maybe you know he just kind of takes the foot off the pedal. But um, I don't know. I, I like Miller in this fight and. and you know, minus 225, it's kind of getting up there out of unplayable range. Um, I could also see, you know, Cerrone looking really bad in the first round like he does a lot of times. And maybe there's a, a good live betting opportunity there. Um, you know, I wish this were lying like the, the Joe Lazan fight would was. It'd be a lot easier to, to just take Jim Miller here and fade Donald Cerrone. But kind of the curl lines, it's a little harder to do that. I saw so many people on Lozon when those fights were matched up and Lozon was the underdog. I saw a uh, hundred different props that people were playing for Lozon. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to see that one. Uh, Dricus Duplessis has a ton of hype behind him. Minus 132, Brad Tavares, plus 104. In my opinion, if you like Duplessis, bet him now. Because I think this line's going to go up to the minus 175, minus 180 range as the hype starts to pick up throughout the week. And if you like Brad Tavares, the opposite. Wait. Wait until Friday. 
um, or even Saturday and, and see what the price is like. I don't think now is a good time to bet him. I don't see a ton of value on either side. Betting against bad Tavares is not a great way to make money. So I'm going to pass on this one uh, altogether. Yeah, I think if if you're going to bet Duplessis and you're convinced, I, I think one possible way to play it, I think there's some recency bias uh, just with his knockout wins where it looks like that uh, prop bet's probably going to be lined more like plus 400, plus 500 for the submission and, or for the K, or yeah, for the submission and plus 250 for the KO. I think a lot of people are thinking KO. I'm actually thinking probably more submission, uh, kind of going back to his roots. Um, I'm not sure he's going to want to stay and trade with Brad Tavares, uh, Tavares too long. Um, so I think if you're going to play this, maybe look at that sub market. Maybe there's some value there for you. Jessica Rose Clark, minus 146. Julia Stolyarenko, plus 114. I thought I was going to get great value on Stolyarenko. I thought I was going to get plus 220, plus 250. Really closely lined fight. And I have to lean with, with Clark at this kind of a price. I just think that she's the more well-rounded fighter. And I, it's kind of almost armbar or bust for Stolyarenko. That's how Clark lost her last fight. You think she's going to fall into that trap again? I don't. So uh, I think if you want to take Clark, you could take her even straight at minus 146 or parlay her with, with you know maybe a Muniz or a Barber or something along those lines. Yeah, no, I, I think you kind of nailed it there. I, I think the value is Clark here. I, I honestly don't understand why this line isn't uh, a little wider. Um, you know, we haven't really seen anything from Stolarenko to um, think that she's long for the UFC or ready to, to fight and beat established names. Um, I, you know, I kind of lean toward Clark via decision. I, I just kind of see her maybe in this fight to the mat and, and, you know, doing enough to stay on top for three rounds, maybe not dominating it or inflicting a ton of damage, but probably winning a, a clear cut decision. I, I think the decision is going to be plus 150 or so. I wish it were obviously a, a little bigger plus 200. I think it'd be very tempting plus 150. I'll probably have to wait around and see. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, I'm surprised this one isn't a, a little wider than it is. I like your uh, way of thinking in terms of finding some value in that line, because I think that the decision, even though it's bantamweight and the finishing rate is a little bit higher, Jessica Rose Clark has not really been a very potent finisher. She's fighting up a weight class here. Um, I think this is going to be her new weight class going forward, but she'll be pretty small for the weight class, in my opinion. Um, and I think Stolyarenko fought on the 145-pound season of uh, The Ultimate Fighter, although this is definitely her her proper weight class is 135 pounds. Well, Dan, thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're now with the Action Network. Uh, I've been watching your bets on a weekly basis. You've been putting them out there. Um, I like the direction you're heading in, my friend, and it's, uh, it's been great to, uh, to catch up with you here. Uh, enjoy the fights, and thanks for joining me. No problem. I appreciate you, Dan. Bye. Appreciate Dan Stop from the Action Network joining me to break down UFC 276. But the preview's not over just yet. I had the chance to speak with UFC President Dana White about this great card, as well as some other topics that are going on right now in the UFC. So here's my interview with UFC President Dana White before we wrap up the show. Appreciate you tuning in to the TSN MMA show. It's International Fight Week, UFC 276 on the horizon. A big main event, Israel Adesonia taking on Jared Cannonier. Now, Cannonier, most of his career was at the heavyweight division. He moves down two divisions in his late 30s. We've never seen anything like this before. What do you think has been the key to his success in doing this? Um, what was the question? Like he, most of his career was that fought at heavyweight, and he moved down two divisions in his late 30s. So he's cutting all that extra weight late in his career, really, and he, he's looked better than he's ever looked. Like, what do you think is the key to his success heading into this main event? Yeah, listen, I, I, I agree. Um, you know, he's fixed a lot of things, not just 
you, you know, moving down weight classes, but also uh, working on his wrestling, um, you, you know, and the, and the guy was able to keep his power with him uh, it, w- w- when he made the move. So this is a fun fight. I mean, if you listen to what Adesanya has said recently, talking about, you know, the belt's been great to him and everything, but he wants highlights. And then you have, uh, you know, Cannoneer, who's, who's dialed in his wrestling and also has that knockout power. Makes for a very fun fight. Well, I was going to ask you what the biggest difference is between Cannoneer and his previous opponents, but you keep mentioning the wrestling. So I'm thinking you're thinking that's what the key will be for Cannoneer if he's going to win this fight? I think, yeah. I th- well, I think this is going to be a stand-up. I mean, the, I, you know, th- these two aren't, you know, two guys that, that focus a lot on, on wrestling and takedowns. So this should be, you know, a stand-up war. That's what I would expect anyway, but we'll see what happens. And especially with Israel saying, He's looking for highlights, and he wants to pull off these incredible moves and, and and these unbelievable finishes. So, yeah, I don't expect any wrestling. And Volkanovsky's been saying the same thing about getting finishes. He got one in his last fight. You look at him and Israel. Neither of them have ever lost in their respective weight class. It's pretty remarkable. Do you think that we take these guys for granted oftentimes when they're in their prime, they're in their championship years, and then eventually we'll look back on them with fondness, but we always criticize them along the way. Should we just sit back and enjoy these guys for what they're bringing to the table? We just we, we don't see guys go on runs like this anymore. Yeah, no, I say it all the time. I, I, it's like Valentina Shevchenko. When, when she's gone, we, we, we will celebrate her way more than we did while she was here. Um, a guy like Volkanovski... This fight with Holloway has to happen for him. Um, you know, if you look at what this guy's accomplished in such a short amount of time, you know, he's got to get this Holloway thing off his back. And then the world is wide open to this kid. Does he move up, to, uh, move to 55? Um, you know, what does he do? We'll see. Well, he hasn't fought that many challengers at 150, uh, sorry, 145 pounds. I think the reason for that is because Holloway keeps beating them all. You keep lining them up. Holloway knocks them down. How big of a gap do you think there is between these two guys and the rest of the division? Yeah, they're, they're without a doubt two of the best of all time. And, uh, you know, that's why these guys are so so connected. And it's like, it, you know, when, when, when you get a guy who wins, you know, two, two out of three fights, you always you're like, well, that's, that's the end of that. I, I don't know if that's ever the end of that with these two. Well, yeah, I mean, that was going to be my next question. If this ends up being a close decision win for Max Holloway, it would necessitate a fourth fight, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be two to one. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would. It wouldn't be out of out of the, uh, you know, the realm of possibilities for this fight to happen again. And people don't always love rematches, but when you have guys that are as high level as this, I think people would watch this fight a hundred times if you have to make it that many times. I agree with you hundred percent. Sean Strickland versus Alex Pereira. This is a really interesting middleweight fight. You've mentioned this is going to be for a title shot. Now, Pereira, for those that don't realize, this guy's the best kickboxer in the world today, most likely. I mean, he was a two-division champion in glory kickboxing. He's only 5-1 and one in MMA, but the story is so deep with, these, with him and Adesanya. Obviously, both of these guys need to win. But do you think this would be a different kind of fight for Israel if they end up being matched up because Pereira has beaten him twice, finished him once in kickboxing, and got a decision over him in kickboxing? Yeah, obviously, if he can go in and beat Strickland uh, this weekend, it's, it's, it's a big deal. And, and yeah, that, that's a big fight for Adesanya. Because if you look at Adesanya's beat Whitaker, Cannoneer, if he wins this weekend, uh, Vittori, uh, Costa, the, you know, it's the fight that makes sense. But it's not just that. He gets to exact revenge over somebody who beat him in kickboxing. He has never been that emotionally invested in anything, I think, before in terms of going into a fight. It's an incredible storyline 
for, for, for a title fight. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Now, about Sean Strickland, if this guy ever won the championship, would you be worried about the kind of things that he would say as champion? I mean, I know you give these guys free reign, but he says some really off-the-wall stuff. Yeah, he does. Um, he's out there, but but this is the fight business. I, I, I No, I don't worry about that stuff. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that everything that's said in the sport I agree with or, you know, some things don't horrify me. But, uh, yeah, that's the business we're in, boys. The rough business. Well, we'll get we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Now we've got Jim Miller taking on Donald Cerrone, a short notice assignment for these guys up at welterweight. This is the he's actually the first fighter to fight forty times in the UFC is Jim Miller, and then you've got Cerrone who's fought thirty eight times, forty eight if you count the WEC. You've been in this fight game for such a long time and have seen so much with your front row seat. How hard of a feat is it to accomplish to actually make this many appearances in the UFC? No, it's true, and, and to still be here. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's awesome, man. And, and both guys are, are great human beings, really good people. So that, that's one of those fights that, that, that if you're a real fan of the sport, you're going to watch and not want to see a winner. You're going to want both guys to win because they're, 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 you know, if you look at all their, what they've done and, and, uh, what good people they are and what fan favorites they are. I know you hate looking ahead, but we're going to look really far ahead because Jim Miller has told me his goal is to fight at UFC 300. He's fought at 100 and 200. Do you think Jim Miller can make it to UFC 300s in about two years from now? That's tough. That's tough to say. I hope he does. I, I, I hope he does. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, listen, he's stuck around this long. We'll see what he can do. All right, I want you to make a commitment to me. If he's still on the roster, when UFC 300 comes around, you'll put him on that card, right? deal all right he'll be happy to hear that how can i not give him that how, how can i not make that happen for him if he's still around i agree with you i'm glad you made the commitment uh now you were out for your son's 21st birthday when ufc 275 was happening and for some reason i haven't heard anybody ask you this yet yuri versus glover two. we have to make this fight right like that's got to be next i don't know we'll see but yeah it makes sense I mean, that was the, the fight of the year. One of the, I think it might have been the best title fight in history. And Glover's, what, 43? Awesome. I, I think he's... Awesome you got to make that next at MSG, near, near his home uh, state of Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, 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 was a, uh, it was an incredible fight. I literally watched it in, in a sprinter van that night and was freaking out during the fight. It, it was uh, incredible. And it absolutely makes sense to make that fight again, but we'll see what happens. And speaking of which, the co-main event, you and I talked about Tyla Santos before that fight and how legit she was and how people really didn't know enough about her. And we were proven right that night. Now, an unintentional clash of heads, unfortunately, I think, really turned the tide of that fight around for Valentina. Is that another one that you think necessitates a rematch? Um, yeah, I mean, you could definitely rematch those two. Um, yeah, yeah, or... or, or I think she's hurt. I think uh, Santos is hurt. And she right broke now. her orbital. Yeah, she's uh, she's out. So I don't know. We'll see. Valentina's another one like Israel that'll fight every weekend. Francis Ngannou was interviewed by TMZ. He said that he's expecting to be ready to go in December or early next year. Are you still looking to make an interim title for the heavyweight division? Uh, we're still working on that. I don't know. We'll see. Because Jones is ready to go. Just who's he going to fight? Is he going to fight Stipe? Is he going to fight Francis? We don't know. 
but there's nobody else in the mix. Like if Cyril Gon wins in Paris, like that, is that out of the question, or are we taking a wait and see approach with just those two? Yeah. What's the hangup with Stipe, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I just think he didn't have enough time to get ready for the fight. He wasn't prepared yet. And uh, I I think he's training. Now, this Saturday will mark the halfway point of 2022. If you could pick just one moment so far that's happened in the UFC that's been your favorite moment, what is it? Oh, my God. So tough to say. I mean, we we were just talking when we started this media tour about how many great events, like, Every time there's a great fight, the, the next one, you're like, how could you get any better than this? And the next one's better. It's like it's like this weekend. Like, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I do the if you don't know, now you know. If you don't know this Saturday, you don't follow the sport at all. I mean, the prelims, the fight pass prelims, Jess Guy and, and Barber are, are, are on there. Uh, Duplessis versus Tavar. I mean, if you don't know this weekend, you don't follow the UFC. I was thinking it after this past weekend's card with Sarukian and Gamrod. When was the last time there was a card where you kind of walked away saying, oh, that didn't really deliver? It's been some time. I mean, you think back to Austin, of course, that card was unbelievable. You were, you were there front row. But this past weekend, I mean, that main event was super high level. You got this weekend. You got last weekend with, 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 the, with that card. The whole card was awesome. And the main event was, you know, ridiculous. You had Austin. You had uh, Singapore. London. And, and, and it just goes on and on. I mean, every weekend, it just keeps getting better and better. And this card this weekend is ridiculous. And I saw some people say not a lot of people knew who Tsurukian and Gamrot were, but watch the card. I mean, these guys were just, you got two top 15 lightweights, probably the most stacked division in terms of the rankings, you know, up there with featherweight, bantamweight. I mean, that fight delivered the goods. And it just goes to show how high level all these guys are in the rankings right now. It's just, it's really a, a great time for the sport, just looking at the roster top to bottom. 100%. You're absolutely right. I mean, these divisions are stacked with straight killers. I mean, like, like, like you said, and, and, and that fight, when, when you got two guys, you know, that, that are, what, 12 and, uh, 11 and 12 or 12 and 13 or whatever they were when they fought, putting on a performance like that uh, at that level, um, yeah, it, it, it's impressive. Well, Dan, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. It's International Fight Week this week. Fighters from all over the world congregating in Las Vegas, and it's the Hall of Fame as well. Thanks a lot for doing this, and look forward to seeing you uh, this week. Thanks for having me. A huge thank you to UFC President Dana White for joining me to discuss UFC 276, as well as my other guests, who did a great job in doing their part. We've got Vince Morales, UFC Bantamweight, helped me recap UFC Fight Night, Sarukian versus Gamrot. Big thank you to Nolan King for discussing all of the big headlines this week in MMA. And a massive thank you to Dan Stupp from the Action Network for previewing from a betting perspective UFC 276 with me. And to you, the listener, thank you for tuning in. If you have the chance to go to wherever you get your podcast, rate and review the show, leave a nice uh, review, I would really appreciate that. So thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.